Hello and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. This is Melissa Pitotti, and we're here to change our experience of power, culture, and well-being in aid organizations. This will help us better meet the core humanitarian standard, and we might even be happier in the process. Today, you'll hear me in conversation with Deegan Alley, the Executive Director of Adesso. I got to know her work years ago during the grand bargain negotiations. I wanted to talk with her now to better understand the story behind the new Pledge for Change 2030. And I also wanted to think about that story's potential next chapter. You can check out the show notes to learn more. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Deegan Ollie. Welcome. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you with us. Um, maybe to start, uh, for our listeners who might be less familiar with you and your work, um, could you tell us a little bit about your story and how the Pledge for Change 2030 came about? For those who don't know, I am the executive director of an NGO called Adesso based in Nairobi. Um, we are a local organization. Um, that operates in Somalia primarily, uh, but we also do global work. And um, and the experiences of participating in the World Humanitarian Summit um, for those two years, 2014 to 2016, were really, they were really important learning moments for me. And um, one, um, for those who don't know, I kind of led the Global South movement that was advocating for more equitable partnerships, and um, not just the resources going to us, but also decision-making going to us. And um, it was at that time that we applied for membership to the Interagency Standing Committee, the IAC. We applied for membership to the Grand Bargain, the Mm -hmm. Sherpa Group. We refused both of those requests, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we also pushed for what was later deemed the localization agenda, and that time I came up with a target of 20% by 2020. And some people thought it was crazy um, that we were that ambitious, considering at that point, only 0.2% of humanitarian funding was going to us. Um, but that eventually through um, a lot of good allies um, in the space and uh, a lot of strong advocacy on our part, um, it was eventually accepted and uh, became a grand bargain commitment of 25%. It was actually increased to 25%. And then during that process, I actually sat with um, Anne Street, who was the head of advocacy of CAFOOT at that time. We sat in Geneva and we drafted the Charter for Change. And uh, she said, tell me what it is that you you guys would want us to change our behavior. Let's forget about the bilaterals and talk about us as INGOs. If you were to put down like 10 things, what would they be? And so that's how we wrote the the 10 things that later became the Charter for Change. I don't know what they are now, the, 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 the actual principles. But I remember the document being a lot more radical. And by the time it went to negotiations with all of these global North INGOs, it got so watered down mm-hmm. that it didn't, in my opinion, it didn't have a lot of meat. So that those two things um, really informed. And then, of course, the grand bargain 
and later now getting into a committee and working on that, what is the definition of a local actor, two-year process of trying to negotiate with the most powerful, um, the Swiss government and, um, and IFRC were chairing the localization committee and uh, what is as local as possible mean? Do INGOs who nationalize in the global south, are they local actors? We were very definitively saying no. But that process was extremely, extremely disappointing for me. And um, those, I think those were key moments when I basically said enough is enough. We need something different. And, um, and that's how we basically I approached a few CEOs, handpicked CEOs that I thought were at least on the right journey, if they were not all there, but at least I felt they were brave enough um, to go on this journey with us and actually have a real conversation about decolonization mm-hmm. uh, and what that really meant. And um, and then maybe in the process, we could have some commitments that had a lot more teeth because there's only five INGOs in the room instead of 20 or 50 or 100 so uh so that's that's how the pledge was uh became an idea. So what I understand from listening to another podcast the new humanitarian um with the launch of the pledge for 2030 which we'll put a link to in our show notes here so people can listen to that as well is that you you did uh I basically approached some of the CEOs who you thought were on the right journey and were willing to have these conversations and I think you met them periodically um, throughout uh, a year and a half, uh, maybe on almost monthly basis, if I'm not wrong. Um, and, and as someone who also was through the grand bargain process and felt some of the same frustrations, I'm very interested in process design, um, where people feel part of it. They feel their voices heard. They feel decision-making is clear. Um, they, they like the outcomes. They want to be part of rolling things out. And so I'm curious, um, how you managed to get these leaders to keep coming back. Uh, With our Leading Well project, we interviewed 15 CEOs, and uh, they are all very stressed for time. And some of them felt a bit of competition uh, with their peers, um, maybe needed a little more time to be open to to expressing (laughs) their full authentic thoughts on things. So I'm curious, how did you manage to to get people in these leadership roles to keep coming back on this process? Yeah, the meetings were monthly. And in the beginning, I think for the first year and a few months, they were three hours. It's a huge time of commitment, a huge time of commitment on their part. I think, I think it was a um, confluence of events. I think there was, it was the right time to talk about the issue. I think they felt a pressing need themselves personally and professionally mm-hmm. to be tackling this issue. This was, um, I approached them at the uh, end of 2020 um, mm-hmm. when everybody was talking about racial justice and they're all struggling with DEI issues in their own institutions. So I think it was the, it was the right time. Um, but I also think importantly, it was the right people and it was really important for me that the group create um, a safe space for themselves, that it doesn't become a space of ego, a space of um, competition um, and all of that. Just lots of humility, lots of learning, 
um, trying to understand how to navigate these issues and share. It was also for them. I mean, I also presented it to them as like, this is an opportunity to learn from each other, to create uh, a space where you all can have peer allies. You can contact each other. Many of them didn't have a very close relationship with each other before the pledge, mm-hmm. and they developed a close relationship with each other afterwards, and they talk regularly now. Um, and I think that was really important because if you're a CEO who really wants to make change happen in this space, you're kind of a lone wolf sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was very particular about the kind of people that I picked for the space. And I was asked several times to expand. Mm-hmm. We did have a, a slightly larger group that went in and out, mm-hmm. um, but these were the real core that stayed throughout the entire process. And so, and it was important for me to keep it small because I've seen processes when they get big, then everything becomes about the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't become about really learning and pushing yourself and challenging yourself and all of that. So um, I think that's what made it unique. And then lastly, just to say that I I feel very, very privileged, actually, that they actually gave so much of their time to me and they trusted me. There were moments I think they thought, and I definitely thought, that this is not going to succeed, that we're not going to actually come out with anything, that we're just going to continue in this, mm-hmm. that maybe we should just end it instead of going in circles. Because certain things were really difficult to negotiate on but um but yeah we stuck through it and we were able to at least get to some compromises but yeah I think it wasn't easy for them it really wasn't in more ways than one not only because of the time commitment it was Mm -hmm. a huge lift on their part but Mm -hmm. also because they were asked to come to a space where they were being challenged and then they had to Mm -hmm. go back and challenge internally their own institution, the amount of internal lobbying that they all had to do um, with their federation is quite massive. Absolutely. This really resonates with me, what what you're hearing uh, in terms of leaders who want to make changes, but feel like lone wolves. We've seen this Mm -hmm. uh, in our work on culture in CHS Alliance, um, people who are working within their organizations to drive change keep feeling like they're running into brick walls and uh and and it's a lonely job and you can get easily discouraged if you take a long view and say this is going to take a long time um how do we resource ourselves um to have relationships with people who are doing similar work in other organizations is something people are quite hungry for in a sense this kind of uh, friendship that you can go on a journey and not feel alone. You feel there's other people going through similar experience and you can ask for advice and give advice and, and connect resources to one another. This is a solidarity that's uh, really called for. So that's lovely to see there. When it comes to equitable partnerships, the Pledge for Change is touching on a lot of important issues. Whether implementers are local whether local partners are women-led or social movements, um, how much funding is flowing to the partners, to what extent is there a fair share of administrative costs, um, the decision-making, is it partner-led, is it co-created? Decision-making is huge, as you noted from the grand bargain process, and what are the partnerships, the perception of partnerships, um, do they feel equitable? Uh, these are all really important indicators that you can look at over time. 
if you step back and look at the future as you would love it to be, it could be down the road or um, it could be very short term or long term. How would you like to see the role of international organizations evolve? And what do you think needs to happen to make it a reality? Yeah, so um, first of all, it was hard to land in a place where we all agreed on a couple things. One, that the default is partnership. The default is not direct implementation. So the idea of INGOs coming into our countries, opening offices, and then doing direct implementation needs to stop, in my opinion. I think what um, I would like to see is a model where they transition from that model of opening offices, but more of a model of using the resources for that structure for instead of that instead of that maintaining that structure, they actually use the resources to um, to develop their partnerships and to indirectly invest in in their partners over a long term many years mm-hmm. rather than it being project based and um I would like to see that they embed their staff in their partners, the old way of doing things that used to be done quite normal. But now these days, I think people have forgotten that that was actually the norm, that you would not open an office, but you would embed your staff um, if if your partner needed help. And if your partner doesn't need help, you just become a facilitator, really, um, of bringing resources from the global north to the south. If they need technical support, you give it either by embedding or whatever other support, or they hire it locally, they need money for it. And that to me will be what solidarity is about, is that we transition it being like transactional and subcontracting kind of relationship to where they let us lead in our countries, just like you all would lead in your own countries. Mm-hmm. The expectation would never be that I from Somalia or someone, an NGO from Ghana would be leading in a response in the UK or the US. That would never be the expectation. So why is it that assumed that we are equals? We're not equals. There's no equality here um, in that sense. It shouldn't be equal. It should be local partners and local governments, really the duty bearers, which are the governments, should be leading in the response. We should not usurp the authority and marginalize the government. The government is, it's their responsibility. Just like we would expect FEMA to respond in the US, we should expect the government of Indonesia, the government of Kenya, the government. um, And if they don't have the capacity, you build it. Why, I, I don't understand why INGOs have gotten so far away from the government and they've gone into this neutrality bubble that is just so harmful because they feel that because to maintain their neutrality, it's okay to take Global North British UK funding and not be neutral, but it's bad to come into Somalia and develop the capacity of the government. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's just so contradictory um, and actually quite hypocritical because I would say that in some ways INGOs have become an extension uh, of soft power of their own governments. Um, and they're happy to take that money. But somehow when they come into our countries, all these principles of neutrality and impartiality come into play. Um, that, it doesn't, that those principles are not relevant when you're working in government territory in Syria, it, it, when you're working in non-government territory in Syria, 
but it does come into play in our countries. It's just ridiculous. It's just the ultimate um, hypocrisy, in my opinion. But so that's that's the kind of role I would expect them to play. I'm interested. Uh, my work is uh, really looking at this idea of living the values. <laughs> so humanitarians are here to relieve human suffering. Um, and we're here to show compassion because we want to do something about suffering. But there's a lot of identity that's wrapped up in that. So a lot of people come to this work wanting to help <laughs> and feeling like they have to do it themselves in order to help. It's, it's a bit of this idea of, I want to help. What does that look like in terms of my value add? Um, here you're saying my value add in, in, in certain contexts could be supporting those who are on the ground who can do this. So how do I best support those by showing solidarity rather than try to do everything myself? I think there are some identity issues that will have to be considered going forward. Do you think that's a fair point? Yeah, I mean, some of it is that neo-colonial planting your flag in as many countries as possible because the matrix of success of CEOs of INGOs is how many countries you have offices, how many foot soldiers you have on the ground, i.e. staff. Um, so we have to get away from those metrics and we have to get different metrics for CEOs of success. Um, bigger is not better. The more funding you get, you know, being a mm -hmm. vacuum of all the money and mm -hmm. is not really as metrics should not be metrics of success but that's the problem that's what they're currently graded by mm -hmm. uh, by their boards and so so there's an element of that then there's mm -hmm. an also an element i think yeah of um i want my brand mm -hmm. to be displayed when mm -hmm. cnn is on the ground interviewing or when babc is on the ground or mm -hmm. al jazeera i want my brand to be there and why? Because that brand recognition leads to more money in my pockets. You see, mm -hmm. so it's all supports each other. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third is there is an element of I have a unique value to uh, 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 that I offer as NGO X that's different mm -hmm. from NGO Y. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of arrogance in that, that somehow you're so special and so unique that you're different from all other INGOs and you're different from all government entities and you're different from all local civil society. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is that white saviorism in there mm -hmm. um, into that ego. So, yeah, I think there's various things that are, are uh, part of that rationale of why you have to be on the ground and why you have to be the one to be responding first and the best and all of that. And that's why you, I'm assuming then that's one of the reasons why humility is something that keeps coming up in these conversations. It is extremely important. And I was looking for hum, uh, CEOs who displayed humility. Mm -hmm. I was not looking for the typical bombastic white male CEO who was, you know, <laughs> honestly, I have to tell you, I was, I, I really didn't, I didn't want to, um, yeah. And it was really amazing. Um, the few white males we had were just really extremely humble and really good people. And they're genuinely, genuinely like trying to fix this problem in their institutions and the sector as a whole. In the episode uh, from the launch of Pledge for 2030, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, um, there was a discussion about the Pledge's accountability mechanism. 
and you said this is where the rubber hits the road. Um, if I'm not wrong, I understand the accountability mechanism that's in place. It was prototyped um, in Ringo, and you're going to be uh, at Adesso. You're going to be hosting it for the next few years. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I I was really hoping that it could be hosted by um, uh, Global South Network, like Near or somebody else. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to be hosting that accountability mechanism mm-hmm. um, and the secretariat. And we're developing the metrics. They're in draft form right now. Mm-hmm. And we hope to get them approved um, by the signatories in the next uh, few months. And then the plan is, is that every signatory has to commit to doing a baseline by the end of the year of mm-hmm. where they are vis-a-vis the metrics. Mm-hmm. And then once okay. they finish the baseline mm-hmm. um, yeah. in 2024, I mean, 2023, Mm -hmm. Um, in 2024, we actually now start doing reporting, peer reviews, Mm -hmm. um, partner reviews, partner surveys, um, all of that. And and as much of it as possible will be done with Global South leaders. It won't Mm -hmm. just be INGOs leading, but it Mm -hmm. will be with us and other Global South leaders being part of this process. The interesting timing for this, because as this process is going forward, the core humanitarian standard is going through a revision process. So 2023 will be um, filled with consultations uh, from those who have worked with the core humanitarian standard and the verification scheme of that standard to see how it can be strengthened. And then I, I think that's the revised standard will be finalized at the end of 2023 for um, to be locked in in early 2024. So I'm curious how these accountability mechanisms could um, speak to one another, or is that something you had thought about, or is that uh, still too far down the road? Is that the C- uh, CHS, does the core humanitarian standards? Yeah, so there are commitments related to supporting local leadership and doing no harm in terms of undermining local leadership and other things related to programming. But I could see how, for example, the the Pledge for 2030 focus on partnership could really complement what exists today in the standard. Maybe the standard could learn from that language that you've got there on the equitable partnerships as it's thinking to be tweaked going forward. Yeah, honestly, I did not know that the the core humanitarian standards were under review. Um, I'm just Mm -hmm. learning this right now. As I've said, I'm, well, I said it in the other podcast with Heba. Mm-hmm. I'm really not very engaged in mm-hmm. the typical humanitarian system anymore. Mm-hmm. I try to stay away as much as possible, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was, no, it's it's been yeah. 20 years of just really trauma and pain, just mm-hmm. trying to move that sector in the right direction. And um, honestly, I've kind of lost hope in it. And that's why mm-hmm. the only group entities that I am focusing on is this small group of CEOs with a pledge. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't engage um, in any other UN meetings or any other events. Mm-hmm. I'm not participating in grand bargain in any way, um, mm-hmm. even though I think we're officially signatories. Um, after they, That was much, year, much later after they refused us entry into the Sherpa group. Um, yeah, so I don't know much. Um, so I didn't know that there were the, this revision happening. So I think there should be an element of uh, partnership on that. We have spent a lot of time on this. 
This is a global South-led process. Mm -hmm. the, the metrics were developed with the M&E team people of the INGOs plus Global South leaders and Adesso being part of that. So, and the accountability mechanism is being uh, led by us. I think this is the first time we have a process that is this way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that hopefully the metrics that we come up with have a lot more teeth than what's currently out there. That's mm -hmm. the intention. I don't think some of the ambitions are different, but I think it's how you measure them and how you hold accountable the INGOs. It's going to be different. I, it's great to have the actual commitments. The rhetoric is great, but if it has no teeth, if it doesn't have any yeah. way of holding uh, the signatories accountable, it just becomes another one of the many, many, many documents that are collecting dust on a shelf that they've signed on to. Absolutely. I'm sorry to hear about your experiences in these processes earlier. I can, I can totally see how that. No, I mean, the thing is, um, my, my time is valuable. Absolutely. My insight is valuable. Yes. My, my capacity, my, my knowledge, my wisdom is valuable. Mm -hmm. And the humanitarian system generally led mm -hmm. by the UN and um, the global system doesn't value it. Um, and doesn't value people like me. So I'm going to go where I'm valued. I'm not going to waste time hitting my head on a wall, honestly. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, and I don't need their money. I don't want their money. I, I think it's a toxic money. I'm mm -hmm. not like, I, we've, we've stopped taking bilateral funding. We've stopped taking UN funding. So I'm not here to please anybody. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so difficult for me. I'm not the typical Global South INGO leader. I'm not trying to get money from these INGOs or the UN agencies or the bilaterals. I have zero interest in maintaining the status quo of the system. And I think that's probably why I'm so difficult to hear. So I think I just have to make very, I have to make very um, important decisions about my own time and my own well-being, about where it's, where it's important for me to engage. And that's the space I've chosen not to engage in. And for those who are listening who would like to be part of Pledge for Change 2030, do you have any suggestions? Yeah, I mean, I think the email is on the website. Just send your email if you're interested in being a signatory. Um, mm -hmm. You have to be an implementing INGO to be a signatory. And to be a supporter, mm -hmm. it's it's um, basically anybody. Um, academia, Global South NGOs, networks. Um, all of the above. So um, if you're interested in being either, we'll reach out to you. Um, hopefully, if you've emailed us on that email, people are monitoring that email. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is, do you have any final words? I, I hope that we can finally see some traction and some accountability to all these great standards and great ambitions we talk about in the sector. So um, yeah, and we're we're happy to work with anybody who's willing to work with us. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Deegan. We love to see how this unfolds further and see how we can connect uh, from the core humanitarian standard side um, as we are trying to make the standard evolve with the needs of the crisis-affected people and those who serve them. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Deegan Alley. I want to thank her so much for sharing her time and insights. And I want to thank our editor, Ziada Abayid, and the CHS Alliance members and the initiative supporters. We will soon be back with another episode exploring embodying change. Till then, take care.
take care and be compassionate with yourself.